food. We know that we were the living dead at best. And yet in your grace, you send your only son, Lord Jesus, to come to die on the cross for us. That he was raised to life and now moves as a king. And Father, we just pray that as we come together as a subject today, we pray that we will listen to his word. Pray that you will soften our hearts by your spirit, that we might have a renewed and a refreshing vision of who Jesus is. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, I was about 16 in what must have been a pretty boring class. I know that because my classmate decided that it might actually be more interesting to talk to me. So, Brian, she said as she turned around waking me for my daydreams, you're, you're, you're a Christian, right? Uh, yes. Where was this going? I wonder. Are you uh, born again Christian? Uh, yeah, I guess so. And there was silence for a few seconds. So, so what does it mean? Uh, huh? Excuse me? You know, what's, what's the difference between a Christian and a born-again Christian? Now, this was a completely unexpected conversation, so I was left fumbling for words. And actually, it should be, should be no difference. La. You, know, you know, Christians are all, all, all born again. La. Uh, and, and actually, actually, everyone, everyone needs to be born again. You know, it's a bit like, like getting pregnant. Oh, no, 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 forget, forget I said that. Uh, uh, okay, okay, backtrack, backtrack. Uh, Jesus, Jesus talks about it in the Bible. Now, now, at that point, we were interrupted, which was probably a good thing. <laughs> now, ten years on from that day, I'm going to try to address that fundamental question again. What? does it mean to be born again? Now the term born again is sadly used and abused so much, especially in the Western media, that few people actually have any idea what it means. So for example, various American presidents have been described as born again Christians. Now that usually means that they are expected to hold certain social and political views, which depending on your perspective, is either a good or a bad thing. The pop star Katy Perry comes from what most media outlets call a born-again family. Why? Because both her parents are pastors. And in fact, Katy Perry continues to self-identify as a Christian. She says that she believes that Jesus is the Son of God. She has a Jesus tattoo on her wrist. In fact, before she burst onto the mainstream scene, she even released a Christian album with song lyrics such as, Lord, help me to see the reality that all I need is you. It's just that in her own words, she thinks that the Bible is a little fuzzy. But really, it's the term born again that's gotten fuzzy, hasn't it? See, born again presidents, born again pop stars, you know, I noticed that even Egypt and Apple this week have been described as born again. 
But of course, such confusion doesn't just exist in the West. I saw a brochure for a Christian retreat uh, in Taiwan Highlands recently. It was targeted at born-again Christians who are 21 years old and birth. Uh, I'm sure it was unintentional, but it's precisely such language that leaves people such as my classmate scratching their heads. Who are the born-agains and not born-agains? And I suspect the reason we slip into such language is because we want to distinguish between those who seem committed, who are at church every week, and take part in various church activities, from those who just show up every now and then. But let's make it clear from the very start. Every Christian, by definition, is born again. There are not two classes of Christians, the born again and not born again. And this is a tragedy. There are many, many people today who think that they are Christians, who call themselves Christians, because they were confirmed as a child, or because they hold membership in the church, or because they're active in a Bible study or fellowship group, or because they believe in God and generally try to live moral, decent lives. This is what makes a Christian, they think. That is a tragedy because it is absolutely false. In today's passage, Jesus tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, another translation puts it this way. In truth, in very truth. In other words, Jesus is saying, pay careful attention. This is incredibly important. You need to listen to this. Unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, one cannot legitimately say that he has experienced God and his salvation. Unless one is born again, he or she is not a Christian. So clearly there can be nothing more important than knowing what it means to be born again. So do open your Bibles with me, if you close it already, and let's work through, let's work through what Jesus has to say in today's passage. And firstly, we see that the new birth is all about a new beginning. The new birth is all about a new beginning. That's chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And John begins by introducing us to Nicodemus. We're told in verse 1 that he is a man of the Pharisees. Now, for those of us who grew up in church, when you think of the word Pharisee, we immediately think, Oh, that guy! Hypocrite! Ooh. But remember, it's not so obvious to the people of those days to make that connection. You see, these are the guys who are disciplined, who watch their diets, who keep on schedule. These are the guys who are known in the community for their good deeds. And they would have been, at the very least, respected. And Nicodemus is also a 
ruler of the Jews, which means that he is a member of the ruling Jewish uh, council. He was part of the elite, and yet clearly independent-minded as well. Now, later on, he is described as Israel's teacher, so that's a bit like your Toko Guru Malaysia. So, here's a well-to-do, well-educated man, learned in matters of theology, zealous for matters of purity. Now, isn't this the kind of role model that you want? And it's also interesting that John should choose to introduce Nicodemus to us at this point in his Gospel. Do you remember what happened at the end of chapter 2, verse 23? Let me just read from that, verse 23. We're told that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. The crowds believed that he was the Messiah. But, verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then he continues in chapter 3, Now there was a man, dot, dot, dot. So Jesus clearly wants to link the two things together. He knows what we are like too well. He clearly doesn't want to have anything to have to do with those who require miracles to produce faith. But there's something different about Nicodemus. Like the rest of the crowd, he could have been impressed by the signs without realizing their deeper significance. But, in choosing to approach Jesus, he has shown a willingness to learn more than the others. And so perhaps Jesus responds by choosing to entrust himself a little more to him than he does to the others. Yet, Nicodemus comes at night. So you can just imagine him sneaking around the corners, you know, avoiding the street lights, making sure his sandals aren't kicking over pebbles as he makes his way to Jesus. Why? Was he embarrassed to be seen with Jesus? Or did he just want to see Jesus up close and personal for himself? It's hard to be certain. Perhaps, like us a lot of the time, he has mixed motives. Now certainly those mixed motives seem to be present in his opening words. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do this science that you do unless God is with him. Now, rabbi is a term of respect, and it's even more striking here because it's used by someone who will be the equivalent of a professor of theology, and it's offered to someone with no formal qualifications at all. Nicodemus must know of the clearing of the temple that we heard last week. He must have heard of all the miracles. There's no doubt, God is somehow at work in Jesus. And yet, you can hear the but 
underneath his words. You're obviously someone's amazing Jesus, but we're not so sure about you. You can see this in, the, in his use of the word we, even though Nicodemus is clearly alone. See, Nicodemus continues to see himself primarily as one of the rulers of the Jews, as one of those in charge. We, that is, the ruling authorities, are actually here to judge that you, Jesus, have passed the test. And maybe we're more like Nicodemus than we care to admit. Okay, Jesus, you're great. You know, you've got good things to say. I like you. In fact, I like this Christianity stuff in general. But I'm not always convinced what you say is true. Or at least what you say applies in the real world. Oh, I wouldn't say that out loud, of course. But deep down in my heart, I don't think you can claim every part of me. You see, Jesus, I've got certain criteria for you to meet. I want you to fit around my expectations of how life is supposed to go. I don't really want to be inconvenienced by people, especially the more annoying ones. Or be asked to give up my time when I could be using it on something more efficient. Or choose to be dependent on you for the decisions that I make. I want you to know that if I follow you, I expect to see results. Some justice done in my workplace. Some problem sorted out in my personal life. Some relationship work out perfectly among my circle of friends. After all, you are God, right? Then you can surely conform to my preferences. But I'll do life my way. Thank you very much. Again, such attitudes, Jesus doesn't mince his words in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't seem to be like a very direct reply. What could Jesus mean? And what Jesus seems to be saying is this. Nicodemus, for all your advanced academic degrees from the Oxford Universities of the day, for all your vast experience in the public arena, for all your passion to strive for the kingdom of God, that will never be enough to meet the entry requirements. You can discuss and debate philosophy as long as you want in your intellectual circles. You can participate as often as you like in religious rituals and social activism. You can try to fix yourself as much as you can to be a better person. But ultimately, what you need is a completely new beginning. And you can't do it on your own. Have you ever tried getting born? 
Imagine asking your mom, you know, mom, I feel like changing my birthday. Do you think you can somehow, you know, give birth to me again at this date? Not going to happen, is it? Can't be done. Not on your own. No way. You have to look outside yourself. Now, if you look at your footnote in verse 3, you will see that another, probably better way to translate being born again is to be born from above. That is, born from the beginning, born from God Himself. So, Nicodemus, you are not in charge anymore. What you need is nothing less than God to change your entire being. What you should be concerned about is not so much your verdict on Jesus, but Jesus' verdict on you. And what is true of Nicodemus is no less true of us. None of us are born into the kingdom of God. None of us can claim to be a Christian by right. It is not a product or a lifestyle that we consume. It is a privilege. New birth is not a fact to dutifully acknowledge, but a gift to gratefully receive. Nicodemus is still confused, however. He doesn't necessarily deny what Jesus is saying, but he asks, how can this new beginning even be possible? And maybe for some of you today, that is also your question. And so Jesus begins to explain more in verses 5 to 8. And this is what he tells us. New birth is a free gift of God's Spirit. New birth is a free gift of God's Spirit. Let me read from verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is restating what he's already said in verse 3. So this time he substitutes born of water and spirit uh, to replace born again. And that's important because on first reading, it seems as if Jesus is simply referring to two births here, one physical and one spiritual. Now if so, then water here simply stands for the breaking of water when a pregnant woman goes into labor. Therefore, just as you gain physical life from physical birth, you gain spiritual life that is entering the kingdom of God from spiritual birth. And on first reading, verse 6 appears to back this up, since it says that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit Spirit. So that seems to make sense. And of course that's true as far as it goes. 
you remember John one verse 12 to 13 on the screen but to all who did receive him who believe in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God But the parallelism of verse 3 and verse 5 tells us that we should probably take the phrase born of water and spirit as a whole and not break it into two parts. So actually there's more going on here than simply a reference to two kinds of births. And that should also caution us against interpreting the water as a reference to baptism, as some do. And in any case, the passage that we're talking about today doesn't really deal with baptism. Instead, Jesus is reminding Nicodemus, Israel's teacher, that actually the promise of new birth is right there in the Old Testament. Nicodemus, you of all people should recognize this. In Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27, we read of such a promise. And this is what God said. I'll pour water over you and scrub you clean. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll remove your heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in you. My spirit will live in you to help you live my way. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. The point is all God's doing via His spirit. Everything. Cleansing, renewal, forgiveness. And Jesus says, this is what new birth is all about. Sinful humans can only give birth to sinful humans. But only God can perform the radical surgery needed for new life. Now later on in Ezekiel, the prophet has a vision of dry, dead bones. But flesh and skin begin to cover them. And as God breathes on them, they come to life. Only God and God alone can perform the kind of CPR that revives the dead. And that's why Jesus can confidently say in verse 7, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. To hammer the point home, Jesus now makes use of the analogy of the wind. Now, when I was in boarding school, I can remember one night where the wind was particularly powerful. Now, I couldn't see the wind, of course. But I could hear the distinctive howling as it pounded against my window. I could see the branches of the tree all bend one way as it struggled to withstand its force. And I remember the way the wind would suddenly die and suddenly start up again without warning. It was magnificent. The wind was invisible. 
but there was no denying its effects. In verse 8, Jesus is making that very point. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind. You cannot see the Spirit, nor can you control Him. But you cannot deny its effects on someone's life. Where there really is new birth, there really is transformation. But what that means is that you can never ever say that someone is beyond God's reach. You can never predict who will or who will not become a Christian. Maybe today you feel despair because someone you care for doesn't seem to be any closer to knowing God or to trusting Jesus. And you want to give up. Or maybe today you lack assurance as a Christian. You know, all your efforts to try harder for God, to be more and more like Jesus, don't seem to amount too much. You even begin to wonder whether you are beginning to move beyond God's reach. You want to give in. Don't be disheartened. Don't be discouraged. It is God who grants new birth. New birth is a free gift of God's Spirit. And that should keep us persevering to keep seeking opportunities to tell others about Jesus. The Spirit can work in anyone and lead them to Christ. New birth is a free gift of God's Spirit and that should keep us persevering to live for Jesus. Because when we are born again, when we are born from above, the effects will be seen the Spirit is working in anyone who is led by Christ. In 1 John, John tells us what these facts are. If you love God, are you struggling to live for Him? Do you love His people, your fellow Christians? If so, then you can be confident that you are born of God. Now, Nicodemus' world is gradually turning upside down. How can these things be? He asks in verse 9, feeling really out of his depth. Now, it's as if he's been given a new pair of glasses, and having been so used to his old pair, he's finding this new pair of glasses completely disorientating. Jesus training him to see, to see Jesus himself. For the new birth is completely centered on Christ. The new birth is completely centered on Christ. That's verses 10 to 15. 
Vers 3. Jesus answered them, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus is gently rebuking Nicodemus here. He is Israel's teacher. He should know these things. And in doing so, Jesus reminds us that our beliefs do matter. See, try to make sense of God, what He's like, what He's come to do, otherwise known by that rather scary word, theology. Matters. It's the difference between life in the kingdom and life outside it. But it's not theology built on our own imaginations. It's not something we can do without God's help. We need God Himself to come down and teach us. And that's the point of verses 11 to 13. Verse 11 to 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear it as to what we are seeing, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things that you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I am speaking with complete authority here. I have come from the throne room of the Father, and I am speaking on his behalf. But Nicodemus, if you can't even understand when I talk about things on earth, like the new birth, then there's no way you can understand the glorious depths of the heavenly things. In the end, Jesus is making it clear that to call yourself a Christian, you have to grapple with who he is. You have to deal with the fact that he says that he reveals God and that we have to trust him on him. Now, not a blind kind of trust, as if there's no evidence to consider. But having considered, will you act? That evidence, or will you reject his testimony? Now, in Proverbs 30, verse 2 to 4, that's on the screen, we find these words Surely I am too stupid to be a man, or maybe that's a good verse to memorize for the guys are too stupid. <laughs> Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man, I have not learned wisdom nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Answer, the Son of Man, who did not go up to heaven to seek wisdom, but came down from heaven to give wisdom and knowledge of God. It's, it's humbling to have to trust Jesus on this. But this is what he asks of us. Will you trust him to be God's word, the word made flesh, to be the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, to be the bridegroom who brings in joy in the coming new creation, 
to be the true temple where we meet God, to be the altar of new birth. And Jesus now comes to the heart of the matter in verses 14 to 15. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Alluding to an incident in Israel's history, Jesus shows us why the new birth is centered on him. In Numbers 21 verse 4 to 9, there we read that the people of Israel have rebelled against God. So he judged them by sending poisonous snakes. And men died. But God then told Moses to build a bronze snake and to put it up on a pole. Anyone who looks at that snake will not die. That's all they have to do to be saved. That's it. No elaborate rituals, no having to do lots of good works. And Jesus now says that is the same with him. He's saying, like that snake, I will be lifted up. Now ordinarily, being lifted up would mean being glorified or being exalted. And yes, Jesus is glorified. Jesus is exalted. But he is glorified, he is exalted as he is lifted up on that cross. He dies so that all who look to him and trust in him will not die but be lifted up with him into a saving, eternal relationship with the living God. New birth is completely centered on Christ. Now, what implications does this have for us? It challenges our self-sufficiency, doesn't it? You see, at the very core of what it means to be born again is to admit that we need God Himself to come down to us. You see, we don't have it within ourselves to live the life, to live life the way God wants us to, day by day. It's to say whether I'm a church leader or just a pew woman. I'm not okay. It's to acknowledge that my heart really does come up with some of the most terrible stuff that I'll be so ashamed of if other people only knew. I can try to control my behavior on the outside. I can even make what is bad look good. I, I didn't really lash out in anger. I was just trying I, I wasn't lasting. All I was doing was enjoying beauty created by God. I wasn't being self-pitying. I was just objectively analyzing my situation. But in my attempts at control, the problem, the poison of sin, remains. It hasn't really been dealt with, just cleverly hidden away. 
sustains us in the sight of God. But God says, don't center on yourself. Center on Christ. God invites us to give up control and instead go to His Son for the remedy. Look to Jesus. Admit what we are really like. How stupid and self-righteous and self-centered we are. But trust in Him. And as you do, you'll find what you really need. John reminds us that the mission of Jesus to die on the cross is ultimately grounded in the love of God the Father. 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, this is who God is. Jesus did not come simply because God wanted to play hero like some desperate guy in search of adventure and romance. He didn't come simply because he wanted to play games. In fact, verse 17 reminds us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. On the contrary, his desire is for people to be saved. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And very clearly, it's not because we are in any way lovable. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
In other words, if we don't believe, we remain in our natural condition as wicked, guilty, lost people. And this is confirmed by verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And this is why we reject Jesus. We don't reject Jesus because we don't have enough information. No, we reject Jesus because we don't want to be shown for who we are. Immoral rebels. And so at the end of our passage today, in verse 21, we are reminded that we so, so, so need God's grace in us. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. And contained within that verse is an appeal for us to repent. Cry out to God, do what is true, come to the light. Look to Jesus, accept God's love, respond to His Spirit. 250 years ago, there lived a very famous preacher in England named George Whitfield. He was well known for his booming voice, which could be heard by thousands without the aid of a microphone. And John Tree was a passage for which he frequently preached. So one day, someone took him aside and asked him, Sir, why do you keep on saying again and again that you must be born again? Whitfield took one look at him and said, Sir, because you must be born again. 200 years later, another famous preacher, most of you know him, Billy Graham, was being interviewed by a radio host. And the guy asked him, So, Dr. Graham, you've been preaching to huge crowds all week, but your message is really quite simple especially for such a sophisticated society. So why do you tell everyone that they need to be born again? Billy Graham looked him in the eye and said, Sir, because you must be born again. You see, in every generation, in every age, this is our greatest need. You must be born again. Shall we now take the time? Maybe take a moment of quiet too to reflect on what you just heard. For some of you today, maybe that might mean thinking through what it means to be born again for the very first time. And for some of us, maybe it means 
you know, we might have the primitive issue test. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word today in John's Gospel. We thank you for your boundless grace, for the immeasurable riches of your love, that you chose to send your only Son, Jesus, to come to the cross, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Lord, we know that on our own we are completely helpless, and yet we are so amazed that you reached down and rescued us. And Heavenly Father, we just pray that we will continue to respond to the promptings of your Spirit, that we will undertake for you, that we will not take granted the privilege that you have given for us. Please help us to keep hanging on to Jesus. Please help us to keep having a habitual son of Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name, precious name. Sent to sing of that new birth we share together in the words of the next two songs. 